Hello and welcome to Strong Habits, the accidentally feminist fitness podcast on all things training, nutrition and mindset. I'm your host, Penny Varoidis, and this is episode 48. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sarah Hawkins from Fig Nutrition, which stands for Food is Good. Sarah is a registered associate nutritionist and a yoga teacher with a special interest in gut health, IBS and improving our relationship with food. Sarah works on a one-to-one basis helping people to improve both their nutrition as well as other important lifestyle factors such as stress, sleep and physical activity which all play a major role in the health of our guts and our relationship to food. Sarah takes a non-judgmental approach and aims to empower people to trust themselves and their bodies. We spoke about all things gut health. This is a really new area of research and we're still learning as we go along. So it was nice to have someone who specialises in gut health on the show and I'm sure some of you are going to learn a few things that are going to be helpful. So enjoy. Sarah, welcome, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for yeah. having me. I am good, thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. Why don't we start by you introducing yourself to the listeners, tell them who you are, what you do. Cool. So I am registered associate nutritionist with AFN and also a newly qualified yoga teacher. So I work kind of mainly with people kind of one-to-one to help them through sort of like IBS, any kind of gut health issues and improving their relationship with food. So basically work on a one-to-one basis and working together to kind of get them through that. So this is very exciting. I got asked a gut question the other day by one of my clients and I didn't know the answer. So I'm going to ask you and hopefully you know the answer because I think it's a really interesting one. And I had, I have an idea of what the answer might be but this is not my specialty. So this is very exciting. Thank you. So my first question is with gluten intolerance, not celiac disease, can you heal from it and go back to being able to eat a normal amount of gluten or is this your life now forever? Yeah, that's actually such an interesting question because the whole sort of non-celiac gluten sensitivity thing, it is just like a really interesting kind of area at the moment because the research is sort of like, Yes, it's a thing, but we aren't sure if it's like psychological rather than actually the food. So there's a thing called the nocebo effect, which is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the placebo effect. So basically, um, for example, in a study, somebody might be given um, a specific pill to try, you know, trying on a different disease or whatever. And then their control group would be given like a placebo pill or like a dummy pill, like a sugar pill. Um, and there's also been research to show that people are given this placebo pill told that it's the pill and they experience the beneficial effects and so it might be like a say like a headache they're told they're given paracetamol or whatever but it's actually done pill and the headache goes away so the placebo effect is almost like this sort of like negative side of placebo where if somebody's told something like negative they can actually psychologically experience symptoms so this is a really big thing in things like gut health or kind of IBS or any sort of food intolerance sort of things so for example if somebody reads online um okay IBS uh or gut health don't drink milk don't eat gluten all this sort of stuff we read that and that can actually be taken into our psychology and then we actually experience these foods when we are aware of consuming them so for example with the um 
with the non-celiac gluten sensitivity that's really interesting because if somebody reads like a lot of the time you see on it like avoid gluten or like bread or these different things um, when actually gluten doesn't affect kind of IBS or our bloating well bloating maybe a little bit but not IBS it's actually the fructans which is a type of carbohydrate in um, different kind of wheat based foods and um, so that's a really interesting idea there there's um, some comparisons there where um, it's people have actually been fed something that contains gluten and they don't actually know it contains gluten they get no symptoms but then as soon as they're told they consume the same thing and they experience symptoms so to answer the question um, with the kind of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, it really depends on the person whether or not they have the sensitivity to, say, the fructans or if it's a psychological thing. Where I have seen where people have kind of gone on these sort of exclusion diets, you know, gotten rid of all these things. Uh, they eat bread and they experience like bloating or kind of issues like that. And then down the line, when they've kind of gone through the process of kind of exploring their IBS, maybe done a proper low FODMAP diet um, with kind of the help of a healthcare professional who's trained in the area, or they've kind of overcome their sort of like food anxieties and food fears that yes, they can then eat bread, which is really, or gluten, like I always say bread, because it's kind of more so than anything else. So yeah, basically there's a potential there. It depends on the individual. It depends on their specific symptoms and it depends on like for that client potentially if they've got like say IBS it really depends on whether it is to do with food or if it's to do with something else to answer your question potentially but it depends <laughs> which is really not not that helpful but it really depends on the individual and kind of the situation at hand really but yeah there is a potential <laughs> is always the answer yeah um yeah. so would gluten sensitivity always come with IBS or could it be its own separate thing again it's not always IBS no definitely not so we've got like celiac disease where you can't have gluten at all you know no questions asked you have to cut that out um but yeah people can have sort of sensitivities with it doesn't have to be IBS related um and it, again it can be a few things as well so it could be that sort of nocebo effect and sometimes as well particularly when it's like bloating it can be how we're eating the food so for example if you think of somebody eating like spaghetti usually when we eat spaghetti we like slurp it up kind of i don't know why i said that word but like you know it kind of comes in sucking in loads of air so we're eating that like and usually when you pass it, it's like mm, yeah you pass it really exciting so you eat it really quick it's like that kind of really quick kind of um eating pattern like it goes down really quick into the system your body might be like whoa like we're not ready for this so the kind of digestive process begins with like you seeing the food and then all your your digestive juices like your saliva and your stomach acid gets all ready it's like like your body's like yay we're ready for food to come in but sometimes when we eat really quickly like that that process kind of doesn't really you know it doesn't have time to fully prepare itself and then if we're like slurping spaghetti and not fully chewing it that kind of first mechanical digestion doesn't take place and then the food is going down and it's a little bit like bigger than it should be so it's kind of a bit of a shock to the system sort of like where your body has to work a little bit harder and then that with the kind of sucking the air in as well like this can all cause that sort of bloating and then there's the other side of like the actual volume of the food so usually gluten containing foods are kind of like you know carbohydrate quite heavy sort of things so the volume of that going into the system is really normal to cause like bloating and things like that but yeah the the kind of issue with um kind of non-celiac gluten it doesn't have to be to do IBS no it can be sort of anyone but again it's also 
interesting to kind of note those side of things too. So for somebody who might be considering that gluten is a bit of an issue for them, maybe take a little moment and think about um, how you're eating. Um, like, are you kind of taking that slow? Are you, you know, are you making yourself get really, really hungry before you and then subsequently eating really quickly because you're like fill the gap or are you kind of taking your time with the meal? Um, are you chewing enough and nice and slowly? Um, are you kind of sucking in a lot of air with it? Um, and yeah, kind of chewing slowly, making sure that that kind of whole process is slow. And then thinking about what is your sort of belief around that food? Um, in the past, like as a child, did you eat that food and was there an issue? If not, potentially looking at, okay, maybe have I read it somewhere? Have I heard it quite a lot? And is it more like, I don't want to say the word in my head, but have I maybe kind of created these beliefs around food and maybe actually it's not, um, not so much of an issue. I think it's really interesting because with a lot of things, this we've spent a really long time separating the ideas of what's in our head with what's in our body as though they're not completely connected. And I think we've come to a point where we're starting to realise that something being in your head doesn't make it not real. It just means that the solution is a different solution to the solution that you thought it was. So with gut health especially, like it's all really new and we're still figuring it out, which is what's so exciting about it. But figuring out how our perceptions can impact our digestion and how our gut health can impact our mood and all of that stuff is super cool and something I'm actually going to come back to in a bit so hold that in your mind okay so with gluten intolerance or sensitivity if someone wanted to wean themselves back onto eating gluten to see if it was something that they could do how would you suggest they do that so I'd say like start small so even maybe you know a slice of bread and more you could have like a slice of toast with like your, di your, your dinner, your breakfast or something. Um, starting small and kind of making sure when you're eating that meal that you're in like a, a calm state as well, because that's another really interesting thing. So as you said, like our gut and our brain are, are linked and every part of our body, like our mind body, you know, it's one big thing. It's not two separate entities. So with the kind of gut and the brain, it's really, really interesting. So like you have where it's connected through the gut brain axis, which is kind of like a like telephone line, basically, where, you know, messages from the gut get sent to the brain and messages from the brain get sent to the gut. And it's kind of like, hey, there's some food coming in. Gut, can you get, get ready to like digest it? So the gut's like, cool. And then the food comes in and it's ready to go. And then the other side might be kind of like, hey, brain, I really need to go to the toilet. Can you kind of tell me to go to the toilet? You know, these sort of things. So like those are kind of very basic ideas of like how they communicate. But then it can also go kind of to like the dark side, I suppose, where like when our brain is quite stressed, that's when we see like that our gut is quite, can be quite stressed. So um, this can be seen quite a lot in kind of things like anxiety and like stress and things like that. So um, in that sort of a case, when maybe we have, you know, a food, okay, so gluten is like, gluten is bad in my mind. My brain thinks, okay, gluten is bad. And so it perceives it as like a threat, I suppose, which can initiate this sort of fight or flight response. So then the body's kind of getting ready for like, you know, oh, this might, might be something that's like bad for me. So I need to be prepared for it. So if we can sort of get ourselves a little bit like relaxed in the situation too. So maybe taking a few breaths, making sure like you're kind of in that kind of more restful sort of like digest state that 
so yeah firstly kind of making sure before you try the food that you're feeling a bit calm and kind of maybe telling yourself like this food is okay it's not going to cause me an issue um it's going to be fine it's almost like telling your brain it's like look it's okay like we can have this food it's not going to cause us harm it's not a threat or that sort of thing so kind of making sure that you're calm around the time that you're trying it and then i'd kind of start small and see sort of how you get on um because you know you could go from zero to like a huge bowl of pasta or a full pizza and then obviously you're going to probably feel a bit bloated or like heavy after because the volume of the food is huge like and also then maybe associated sort of guilt around of like oh i'm a bad person sort of thing that some people get but yeah it's very small maybe like a slice of toast maybe try like a small bit of pasta or like different things like that and then if you do sort of you know it sometimes can be good to think about like the digestive process and it going down and also remembering that it is okay to feel a little bit like your for your tummy to expand after a meal because that's just your your body expanding and in, in the volume sense of things but if it's like quite big and quite painful and um, potentially then maybe going for a test or maybe trying again at a later stage it's interesting that you're talking about being calm and taking your time spending more time on meals is something i'm always trying to encourage clients to do and just be really mindful and pay attention to the meal that they're having and actually enjoying it because so often we end up eating things that we don't even really like just because it's eaten time and then sometimes you're eating something that you love but you didn't pay any attention to it so you go and have another one but if you just paid attention to it the first time you wouldn't feel like you needed to do it again which I think is really important for like multiple reasons so knowing that as well as all of the other wonderful benefits you get from being more mindful with your meals, that it can also have a positive impact on things like IBS or on potential intolerances is really important. And then also, I want to talk a bit more about bloating, because I think we as a people have catastrophized bloating to the point that often people panic at a normal amount of bloating as though suddenly they're really sick or something is really wrong or they've somehow gained lots of weight since yesterday and it's a big panic but it's like this really regular big panic because obviously your belly expands every time you eat something and some things probably more than other things depending on how much gas is required to do the digesting inside your belly so can we talk a bit about that like can you explain the bloating process for the listeners so they can understand what's going on yeah I think it's such an interesting topic because as you said like it is such a panic like and like while bloating like chronic painful large like pregnant belly sort of bloating is sometimes a good sign to like you know speak to someone about bloating is just such a normal part of the digestive process and I think you know between maybe magazines television social media probably a lot more um in recent years you know, we're so used to seeing these like perfectly flat, like perfect abs that like, why can't we have that? Or why don't we look like that? And like, they seem to have a meal and they don't get bloated like me. So it's this huge panic, like in comparison sort of thing. But the bloating is just part of the digestive process. So as I said, in any time you eat a meal, so you might wake up in the morning, completely fat belly, then you go and have your breakfast. Let's say, for example, it's a bowl of porridge or like toast or something like that. It's really normal for your body to like 
change shape or to expand a bit because that's a volume of something going in and like your stomach is like a really dynamic organ which stretches so if you think of sort of like a balloon for example and um, you know a balloon starts pretty like limp and empty and then you blow it up a bit bit of volume there and it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger so if you think of the food like the air going into the the balloon it's like expanding out and that's normal because that's just it like taking the food in before it starts to digest it and as it goes through kind of our different small intestine and large intestine it kind of might get smaller and smaller and then gets built into kind of feces and things like that but that's just such a normal thing to happen like especially if say you have like water with it or anything like that so like bloating is really really normal it's so part of the digestive process so it's really something we don't need to panic about too much um which i like obviously it's a lot easier said than done because you know, there's just so much coming at us from all angles between like the television and the Instagram and the Instagram, I don't know why I said that, but like Instagram, Facebook, all these things, you know, we're just getting bombarded with like pictures of like everything. And like, we just need to remember as well that these pictures are just a snapshot of that person's day. Like they might've just done like a workout or whatever. And, you know, they're feeling pretty good. So they want to get a picture of, you know, their abs or whatever that they've been work working really hard on. And just to remember that that person, does get bloated too they eat a meal and it's not even bloating it's just like expansion of your torso because there's like a volume going in and um, so it's good to just remember that that is really normal and that you know when you do eat don't panic when your belly gets a little bit bigger because it does go down again too so sometimes when that becomes a bit of a thing that's like really really maybe upsetting or stressful sometimes actually having the meal and like noticing the change like you know feeling the food like sometimes you can't feel the full process like but actually noticing seeing like the kind of change like the belly expanding a little bit then maybe checking in maybe an hour later to see that it's gone down a little bit again and that you know that's just that's how our bodies work they change shape they move like the weight changes all the time like depending on what you've eaten what you've drunk if you've been out for like a big meal with three courses of course you're going to be hugely bloated because you've had three meals like that's that's a lot like and it's a great thing to do with your family it's great memories and you know by the morning you're going to be back down to your normal size so it's just just good to remember that that whatever that sort of bloating is it is temporary it is just your body doing its job really it's extracting the nutrients from that food to keep you healthy and to keep you well and um yeah so i think it's just good to remember that sometimes and just kind of you know leave it you know kinder to yourself it's like you're not a failure for getting a bit of bloating that's just how our bodies work and it's just just working hard for you to keep you energized and give you the energy to get through your day basically it feels like something that we used to know like i remember once upon a time if people were going out for dinner they'd wear their their eating trousers but that i don't think that's a thing anymore so like you would go out knowing that you were going to expand and you were going to fill your belly with food and and now if we and our trousers become tight it's like oh no this is terrible yeah. Well, maybe we just need to have eating trousers again, guys. Yeah, because I suppose even those days, like those days, as if I'm an L one, but like, you know, when you're a kid and your dad or your mom did wear their eating trousers and it was all this like fun, like, oh yeah, like I'm so full. And now it's almost like your your jeans get tight and it's like, oh my God, I must, I must have IBS. There must be something wrong with me. Like there's a lot of like panic and like worry about it when, um, yeah, just think back to those days of when you're a kid and you got really full because you ate a meal that was really, really delicious. And then the next day you were fine again because you didn't really care. There was no one else to compare to. Um, yeah, I think that was a really good point, actually. So with intolerances, I, similar to the gluten intolerance question, I didn't eat dairy for a really long time. 
I think I made myself lactose intolerant by not drinking milk anymore because I stopped putting it in my tea and then I didn't really have it anywhere else. And I remember having a milkshake that I really, really loved. That was like my favorite milkshake that I would have on a special occasion and being in so much pain that for the next two hours, I was like curled up in a ball Mm -hmm. wanting to die. (laughs) And then very dramatic, but that's what it felt like. And then I think a few months later I had an ice cream again lots and lots of pain but this time I think I threw up and then from then if I ate if I ate any dairy I would just throw up and be in pain and it would be horrible and I think the longer the gap was the worse the worse the symptoms would be because I either mentally I'd told myself this story of how horrible it was going to be or the bacteria in my belly that was required for digesting the dairy didn't really exist anymore because I hadn't eaten any for so long. So I don't know what the answer is. One of those two things, maybe a combination of both of those things. So yeah, it was years and I wasn't, I didn't eat any dairy. And then last year from like January to August, I slowly, slowly reintroduced things like cheese and milk and ice cream into my life and now I can totally eat a bowl of yogurt and be fine which is really nice especially when so many people from this current generation of people have been told that we're intolerant to everything and that you shouldn't eat all sorts of things so then we cut things out thinking that that's a good idea and then we make ourselves intolerant to them I'm assuming because that's what I think happened to me maybe that's not how it goes but yeah it's nice to know that it doesn't actually have to be that way and cheese is great and you don't need to eat the substitute cheese if you don't want to (laughs) yeah so I'd say um it probably was a bit of a combination there but the thing with lactose is it's actually really interesting um side of things too because so when we're born like we have loads of this enzyme called lactase which then or digests lactose and that's because for the first like few months of our life maybe even a year all we have is milk so we need loads and loads of lactase to be able to digest the lactose as we start to be weaned off kind of the milk and we're eating more food we're not having as much milk this enzyme starts to kind of deplete a little bit because your body's basically like okay we're getting nutrients elsewhere um we're getting more food we don't really need as much lactase produced anymore because we're not getting as much milk so that's just like, we're kind of like, okay, cool. We, we're like, we're safe, we're healthy, let's keep going. So then when you get to point, like as you kind of age and age, that sort of, I wouldn't say like lactose tolerance, but that enzyme can continue to kind of go down a bit. So if you kind of cut out dairy completely out of your diet, your body's basically like not getting this anymore. So there's no point using the energy to produce this enzyme anymore because it's like we can use that energy on loads of other things like maybe pumping your blood around your body, helping you think, helping you cross the road, all these sorts of things. So it's kind of like, you know, it's like wasted energy essentially. So it stops making it. So that's where these things can kind of happen. And when we cut, well, particularly with lactose, when we cut lactose out then or cut milk out of the diet, when the enzyme's not there, then when we consume it, it's then like, oh God, what do we do now? So that's where you get the kind of issues with maybe sort of things like diarrhea, where it's going to just go straight through because it's there's no other way or else you're going to get sick because it's it seemed kind of like we can't really deal with this. We'll just get rid of it. So but the thing with lactose intolerance is really interesting, too, is usually 
those with lactose intolerance who kind of always had it can tolerate small bits of dairy. So like small bits of cheese. Um, I don't know the exact um, level, but they can to tolerate small bits. And then through that, it's been seen that if, if it's like slowly, at, you're actually a great kind of anecdotal example. If you slowly introduce it, smaller, smaller bits up and up and up, your body starts to be like, okay, this is coming in again. We need to be able to like deal with this. So then it starts producing that enzyme again. And then you kind of get to a stage where milk is fine, yogurt's fine, ice cream's fine because your body's now like, okay, this is coming in a lot. We need to kind of, you know, we need to get on it like and start making this enzyme again so we can use it and get those nice nutrients out and and uh, and digest it properly so then you've got that side of things so that's the kind of physiological side of things and then the kind of again the mental or psychological side of things depending on the person again it's not the same for everybody again that sort of thing of there's been so much like about dairy in the last few years i suppose where it's like oh that's bad for this causes that causes this so like there's a kind of widespread like confusion of like do i drink this milk or do i not like should i be on the plant milks because i'm reading this and then someone else saying that so most of the time it's like let's just err inside a caution and get rid of the dairy so then you have that psychological thing again in the head of like dairy bad we don't drink that like don't drink it then all of a sudden you've had a meal and realized oh my god there was cream in that curry sauce or like things like that and then if you didn't know it could have been fine maybe it wouldn't have this physiological side might have been like hey see ya but the mental side is again it's like the panic again and the stress response like oh god something's happened and it's the anxiety and the stress in the mind that feeds through that kind of telephone line to say oh god there's something in there that shouldn't be like get rid of it and then boom you've kind of got either bloating or the kind of diarrhea side of things or that sort of thing so in that situation, it could have been a combination of the two things, potentially with your increased like knowledge um, about nutrition and about dairy and things like that. It's kind of like you can definitely switch those things. For some people, it's a lot easier than others. Um, so it could have been a combination of like that slow reintroduction and the side of like, hey, actually, dairy is not so bad. But yeah, so there's definitely both sides to that. But um, yeah, I think if you completely cut dairy out, that um, enzyme kind of just is like, bye. But um, it's not really the same for every intolerance because some intolerances are really real and your body just can't really cope with it. And then some intolerances are kind of driven by psychology and beliefs around the food. And in that sense, you can definitely work on those beliefs and kind of overcome that and then slowly begin to reintroduce it. And then it's great. How do people find out which it is if they are intolerant to something? Yeah, that's a tricky one really really tricky because you kind of have to go back in time a little bit and be like okay well when did this sort of present like when did you find yourself all of a sudden not able to say drink the milk and it could be maybe they had a bit of eating or not um what's it called food poisoning sorry they might have had like a food poisoning episode which can actually affect the, the gut quite badly and that's what sometimes brings on things like um intolerances and ibs and things like that so in that situation it could have been Kind of physiological and then on the other side it might be like oh well like all my friends are doing it or i read something or this happened um and then you kind of think okay well if it's it it depends again on the individual it's sort of like case by case you're kind of like okay if it's potentially the more psychological side then we can like feed into that a little bit more and say okay and like before that was okay and what are the symptoms and what are your beliefs around it and you kind of have to sort of like explore it a little bit but um it is a tricky one because again that sort of nocebo effect is really um really really strong because it's 
it actually affects your physiology so it's like it's never about oh it's just all in your head you're just like making it up it's like these beliefs really feed into that that body which the whole kind of mind body connection thing is like so appropriate in every situation but in that case it's really 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 true like it's real physical symptoms that the person is feeling so it can be a bit of a tricky one to figure out it's hard isn't it because most things you can't even do tests for like people will sell you an allergy test but based on like your hair strand or something but most of the things that they're testing for it's not it's not really telling you anything that it's telling you that it's telling you which is ethically not great because they're taking your money but also just really not helpful because then you think that you're allergic to loads of things like I know a few people who've done it who've ended up with a list of like 20 30 different foods that they can't eat and it's like oh but now now you're living your life not eating things that you really like that you didn't even think of as a problem before you took this test Mm. and now here you are but I don't think there are that many tests that like even the doctor can do gluten you can get tested for and I think lactose you can get tested for but I don't know what else do you know in terms of kind of those kind of tests I'd always go down the medical route because those are kind of the like legit sort of evidence-based like proven to be like true sort of so you can get your celiac test done you can get a breath test for lactose which is kind of um it's usually fine but sometimes they're kind of unsure but you can also get a blood test for lactose so that's really a really good way to see um and then is it there's another one that I cannot remember the name of but there are like loads that it's these ones that you kind of see online that are cost like a bomb that's really usually a good sign to avoid because you know the thing is I think there's kind of two sides to that like there are people who are just preying on people's vulnerabilities and it's like I can make money from this quick so I'm going to sell them this and then if they have all these issues then I can give them this like really restrictive eating plan and then I can make more money and then they're probably going to have issues again and they're going to have to come back to me and those sort of things and then there's other people who genuinely like fully believe it so you kind of like that can be quite difficult because it's sort of like they don't actually know that they're doing any harm but it's really really harmful so it's sort of um what i'd say in that situation is stick with your gp stick with the doctor stick with the medical group because any of those other stuff they just isn't like evidence to back them up and it really is just them looking to get their hand in your pocket really rather than actually help you so i think that's really good advice always if it feels like a medical thing go to your doctor not to anyone else Okay, so when it comes to IBS, which is super, super common, what what causes IBS? Where does it come from? Yeah, great question, because it's, it's just such a complicated sort of issue. So basically, it's like a disorder of the gut-brain axis that we already kind of spoke about. So basically, that communication between your gut and your brain is a little bit sort of out of sorts and presents itself with a really overly sensitive gut. So there's no like one cause there's quite a few different things that can sort of make it rear its head so it could be a genetic predisposition so if your family if it's in the family there's not a hundred percent chance you're going to get it but it's possible you know an issue like a disease of the gut so if you had traveler's diarrhea or if you had a bit of food food poisoning that can bring it on as well and then there's kind of things like psychological factors so often we see between people with kind of depression and anxiety IBS can often go hand in hand with that. Again, that sort of like stress brain and anxious brain. It's like, uh, gut help me kind of in the gut. It's like, oh, I don't know what you want me to do. Um, and then stress as well is a huge one. 
So there's quite a few different things that, you know, it could be one or it could be a combination. Um, so yeah, it is a bit of a complicated one, but the main thing as well with IBS is it has kind of a few different kind of signs that you've got. It is like, you know, there could be bloating, there could be abdominal pain, there could be diarrhea, there can be gas or a combination of all of these. Um, but just because you've got any of these symptoms or some of them doesn't mean that you've got IBS. So if you do think you've got IBS, it's really important to, again, to go to the GP, get the test done because some of the symptoms associated with IBS can also um, cross over with things like irritable bowel disease and celiac disease. So it's really good to go and get those completely ruled out to be sure that you're kind of like healthy in that sense. And then um, after that, you kind of know rather than you've got all these symptoms, you think you've IBS and then it's a huge panic, you kind of get that closure. And then from there, you can kind of look to maybe seek some support from a nutrition or a diet or a nutrition professional or a dietitian, which can be really, really helpful. And is IBS something that once you have it, you have it forever? Or is it something that you'll have for a bit and then you can not have it anymore? Yeah, so there isn't a cure, unfortunately. And because it's sort of like a disorder of the good, it is kind of a collection that yeah, it is a thing that you're probably going to have for most of your life. Um, some instances it will be, you know, different situations might make it more kind of worse, but then you have other times in your life where it's totally fine. Um, but yeah, it, it is a thing that probably is like a lifelong thing and you just learn to kind of manage it really. So what sort of things can people think about if they do have IBS when it comes to their food specifically? My route is more so the sort of lifestyle factors before the food, because, you know, you can go ahead and Google all the foods and cut everything out and have this really short list of foods. But then that's really stressful um, and really hard to like socialize and all these sorts of things. So I would always kind of look at the sort of lifestyle factors. So things like your stress management um, your exercise, sleep is really important. So kind of the main thing for kind of general I would say make sure you're kind of getting enough but not too much of fiber that's always like a funny one IBS depending on it's like the the kind of constipation predominant or the diarrhea predominant we kind of need more fiber in the constipation predominant to kind of keep things moving but we would need to kind of keep an eye on it for the diarrhea side because that kind of causes that and um, so kind of looking at the fiber intake kind of aiming for around 30 grams and then if you can like manage that that's great getting enough water because that's going to kind of keep things moving through the exercise is a big one because if we think about our digestive tract and everything going on there, it's one big muscle. So if you have, for example, we go to the gym and we might do bicep curls for our biceps to kind of get those really strong and really like, like football and kind of active and that. But if we don't do that, that muscle can get like a little bit weak or a little bit kind of tired or that sort of thing. But your gut is kind of the same. So if you're not like kind of giving it enough fiber, giving it enough water, moving it enough, it just kind of gets a little bit sluggish or a little bit slow and a little bit kind of like lazy. So getting the movement is really good for that. It's going to stimulate the gut muscles to kind of keep things moving through quite a bit. It's going to also help kind of manage the stress. And then when we think of stress itself as well, stress, as we said, the brain and the gut are so connected and always talking to each other. So if we have like a really good example is say if you're going for an exam or you have like a presentation, you have that sort of like nervy poo. It's kind of like your body being like, oh God, something stressful is coming. Like we need to like evacuate. So the whole sort of stress response, like it goes back to when we lived kind of in the wild in our primal days where you're walking along kind of through the field, going to do some hunting and next thing you're faced with like this big huge bear and it's like, oh, okay, this is sort of like 
and you still have this situation, this huge threat. So the bear is like, you either have to like kind of fight the bear or like flee the situation. So your body has this system where it's like called the fight or flight system where it needs to kind of like react really quickly. So it's going to increase your heart rate, maybe make your, you more alert so you can see what's going on. It's going to make your breathing kind of more shallow. And one of the other things it does is it shuts off digestion because in that state where it's like, I'm kind of need to fight or flight to like, to um, survive here, digestion doesn't matter. Like I don't need to digest my food right now. In, that, in fact, actually I need to be lighter. So I need to open my bells to remove anything that's in there so I can run away really quick. So that's where we see things like diarrhea and things like that. It's like the nervy kind of thing where your brain sees this like threat and it's like, okay, we need to open the doors and let everything out so we're lighter and get away. Or if there's something in there, it can also be kept in there where you see like the kind of constipation or the bloating side of things. And the bloating might be that the food is in there a little bit longer. So it starts to like ferment. So in that sense, while we're not like in the wild anymore and we don't really see these physical bears anymore, that bear can still be in our lives all the time. So it could be like a work colleague, it could be a boss, it could be a really annoying like friend or something, it could be your phone in your pocket and all these sorts of things. So that thing is always being like switched on and we can find ourselves stuck in that sort of like fight or flight state, never really get into that kind of calm or like rest and digest state. So the stress management could be really important there. So things like well, anything that you enjoy really to kind of get you kind of back to that state of calm. Um, as I said, the exercise can be really good for that, depending on what type that you like to do. And then sleep is really important too. So if we think about like our body clock, like our body has that body clock and our gut microbiome is kind of all the bacteria and fungi and yeast that live in our gut. They also have their own little sort of body clock too. So if that's a little bit like out of whack or like you're not getting enough sleep, they're a bit like, whoa, whoa like I'm really tired too. I don't really want to digest your food. And then things can get a little bit like messy and things like that. And then if we're like sleep deprived, we're more stressed sometimes, our food choices might be different um, and different things like that. So all these things are really important to kind of look into first as well before kind of like food is really important, but sometimes these things can be enough and then we don't even have to touch like the diet. But then the line after that will be you try all these different things, maybe kind of looking at increasing the fiber um, increasing the water intake, making sure that we're eating regularly maybe little and often is usually the better way to go. And then after that, if these things aren't working, then you kind of look down the route of like a low FODMAP diet, um, which should really be the kind of final route of action because it is quite restrictive. It is quite difficult, can be a bit stressful. And if you are going down that route, always go with uh, a dietitian or nutritionist who is trained in the FODMAP diet because like you need the help. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Can you explain what low FODMAP means? Yeah. So, FODMAPs are, it's like an acronym and they're different kind of carbohydrates that aren't really well absorbed in the gut. So for somebody who's got like a kind of normal functioning gut, no issues, they're usually fine. For some IBS, they could be a little bit of an issue. So FODMAP stands for fermentable, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. And these are all different types of carbohydrates, again, as I said, that don't get absorbed quite well. So there's a huge long list of foods that these are present in, loads of different foods. And just because this has a huge big long list, it doesn't mean that every single food is going to be an issue with some IBS. So this is where the low FODMAP diet come in, comes in, where you do a sort of restriction phase, where you remove all these FODMAPs, give your gut like a chance to see if, if it helps as well is really good. So that can go from anywhere kind of two to six weeks, um, depending on kind of the positive kind of benefits, if it improves or that. Sometimes that can be two weeks, sometimes it can be longer. 
After that, we need to do the reintroduction phase, which is really, really important because in this, in this phase, we see what are the foods that are causing the issue and what level of tolerance that you have, which is great. So if you might have, um, let's say for example, a glass of milk or something, you might be able to have a certain levels of milk or like yogurt or that. And then over a certain level is a bit too much, but like the fact that you can still have some of it is really, really helpful. So it gives you a lot to play around with. And then you've kind of got this sort of personalization phase, which can be kind of a few months down the line where you know, okay, these are the foods that I can have. And these are the level that I can have. These are the foods that maybe aren't so good. So maybe we should like kind of avoid. But in combination with this, that sort of kind of self-care and stress management side of things can actually down the line, if we retrial these kind of foods that aren't so safe, sometimes they can actually come to a point where that they are able to come back into the diet when we try them in smaller amounts while also kind of keeping that stress management to a minute or to a yeah stress, managing the stress basically will people with ibs find it really easy to end up deficient in stuff if they end up having to avoid loads of different things because i guess a lot of the time the things people end up avoiding end up being different plants like fruits and vegetables and dairy and stuff which are full of loads of nutrients that are really useful so what happens when you can't eat those yeah so that's the thing with with the particularly like the low FODMAP diet this is why it's really important to kind of get that support because when you're putting out all of these foods like you are at risk of the deficiency of these different foods you're also at risk of kind of having a really low fiber intake which can actually exacerbate issues because our gut bacteria feed off fibers. So when that's taken out of the diet, they basically are like, oh, I'm not being fed and they die off. And then you've got a lower kind of diversity of bacteria in the gut, which can also have an effect on IBS and gut health and things like that. So it's really important to get that support to make sure that although you're not having the foods that contain FODMAS, which can be kind of high fiber, you're getting other foods that do contain the fiber and also getting the kind of different vitamins and minerals and that. Um, so there are definitely ways around it sometimes on that sort of um, plan with the dietitian you might need to take some sort of supplements in the short term but yeah it is that's kind of why we always kind of say that sort of restrictive elimination diet is always the last route of action because it's really stressful too which can also exacerbate things again such so much restriction can often end up in sort of binging episodes which can be really stressful and really upsetting and also the volume of food again if, if it's like a big binge can exacerbate symptoms too so it's this kind of, kind of cycle of like stress like restriction and anxiety and binging and all this sort of stuff so yeah it's really important that although I think a lot of the time when you get diagnosed with IBS you do get that printout sheet of like the low FODMAP diet I really recommend speaking to a dietitian or nutritionist or asking the doctor to refer you because it's just going to be so much so much easier for you and like you really deserve that support like you shouldn't have to go alone. I imagine it would be really hard to do it by yourself like dieting generally is always much harder by yourself if you even for people who know what they're doing like I know loads of coaches who will still hire a coach when it comes time to do a diet just because support makes the whole process much easier and when it comes to something like low FODMAP where you are cutting out loads and loads of things it's a really difficult thing to do generally anyway because there are so many things and there are loads of things that you're probably not even thinking about that people are handing you all of the time so now you're also saying no to all sorts of social things too because that's the only way to figure out how to do it so the emotional and mental side of doing it is really challenging so I'm I mean I'm not really surprised but it's still shocking that someone's just given a printout and not also given a human 
because the dietitian would make the whole process a lot more manageable yeah I think um particularly in say like the UK it's just kind of um there's not really enough because there aren't really a huge amount of kind of professionals in the UK who are trained in low fat so that kind of makes it a little bit difficult but I do know like speaking from experience I've IBS myself and I did go down the route of low fat diet a few years ago after that situation and um yeah it's really really hard um it's really stressful and it can really mess up your relationship with food as well it can really bring on a lot of like food anxieties and food fears that as we already discussed can make things so much worse and it, it can be quite difficult like in the doctor surgery where you're kind of like all right that's it then here's a few maybe antispasmatics off you go sort of but again I don't think it's their fault it's just that lack of time and their lack of understanding as well I think because there's been such a kind of a an increase in IBS in the last few years it's sort of like another one like can't really do much here and I suppose for doctors it might be a thing of oh it's all in their head or whatever which is never good I think yeah in that situation I would always kind of recommend people to kind of ask the question and really kind of keep at it because it can be really easy to kind of just be pushed out whatever and then if you're not really getting the support through the medical route do you go private because it will like it might think it might seem like oh it's a lot of money to spend but I, I think your physical and your mental health is always worth every penny so I just think it is probably going to be the the best route for for you and even if money is an issue you can always discuss it with the, the individual and see where you can go from there. I think that's a really important thing as well with mental and physical health we often ignore ignore those things and and don't want to spend money on looking after them but of all of the things you're going to spend money on they're probably the most important because hopefully that will be something that benefits you forever and especially like in in this country we don't really do therapy but it's getting a bit better I don't know what it's like in Ireland but like there's still big taboo about therapy and it's kind of a thing that you only do in like massive crisis not like general maintenance and I think if that was something that people just did like every week or once a month or whatever just for always we'd all the whole as a society would benefit hugely and the same with like nutrition and fitness if it's something that you just do regularly and you make sure that you're always learning and you've got like a solid support system that would be something that will look after you forever hopefully so that you're always in an all right place Mm -hmm. which is easy to not be when everything is always really hard and being an adult is tough (laughs) definitely and I think like especially with the mental health I think any sort of psychological anything like anxiety stress depression or like even traumas that may have happened no matter how big or small throughout your life even if it doesn't present in like full-on depression, it can always present in a physical state. So for example, it could be the IBS, bloating, things like that. You can get pains like in different parts of your body, maybe like, you know, so like it is sort of a thing that like you can ignore it for as long as you want, both physical and mental health. But like at some point, something's got to give. And if that's an illness, if that's uh, depression, if that's like, you know, something where you're going to need like surgery or that sort of a thing, it would be yeah I think that things are starting to shift a bit that maybe the kind of slightly younger generation are kind of seeing these things that okay maybe it is a good thing to kind of like look after things and try prevent and things like that but I really yeah for in terms of like mental health I think it would be a really great great thing to see become even more like normal and popular because 
even to take that maybe hour a month or like every week or whatever to speak to somebody it's just taking time for yourself as well isn't it and really having that like even an hour to like check in and see like how are you I'm actually not great and you're like oh well why and then you can actually talk about it whereas it's like instead of running through that right race of like I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine and then boom something happens it's like oh shit I'm not fine sorry for my language sorry but you know it's like you're kind of like you know you can prevent that catastrophe at the end of it happening and you know yeah that whole prevention particularly on the day that's in it it would be really really good to kind of make that I don't know how we can make it any more normal I do think it's like shifting and like the conversation about mental health is definitely up there but we really do need to make things like therapy or things like that not even cool but just normal as if it's the same as like going to see your doctor because you've got a sore toe or like going to your dentist because you need a tooth taken out because it is as normal as that like I don't know why we have this thing about um mental health as being such a like a thing I think particularly in Ireland it's like oh she's a bit wacko or something so it's you know that sort of thing like it's definitely shifting but um particularly for the older generation sometimes you kind of think like oh so anyone listening go to therapy it's good for you <laughs> it is good for you yeah. um okay so really cool stuff that you may know an amount about but there isn't that much available yet but have you seen the research in mental health and gut health and that connection between the gut brain axis and things like depression and anxiety those are the things that i've seen but maybe there are other things too yeah so it's um it's a really cool kind of section of this area that's like definitely emerging and there's like so much more that we need to learn but at the moment like some of the research shows that those who might have like depression anxiety and different psychological um kind of illnesses and things like that the diversity of their gut bacteria is often differing to maybe a healthy subject that's compared to and the different types of bacteria the kind of um it's called dysbiosis so the kind of quote unquote like bad bacteria is kind of higher than the good bacteria so that could be having an effect it could play a role like it like i think with mental health like obviously i'm no expert whatsoever there's so much to it like so many different things and like terms of your upbringing and different experiences that but it's interesting to see that the gut microbiome could be potentially play a role there and there's you know we have the gut brain axis but there's also a kind of gut brain microbiome access axis that's kind of like now emerging and there's more research being done and so some of the research that has been done is by improving the diet I think it was more of a Mediterranean style diet so kind of high fiber healthy fats like kind of lean meats and stuff like that lots of fruit and veg lots and lots of fruit and veg and carbohydrates they that kind of showed to to be beneficial and improvements in mood in those with them um, with depression and different psychological things now this is in conjunction with any sort of kind of therapy or um, medication that the individual is on so it's really important to remember that that while this is really cool and interesting research it's always in combination it's never alone and then some other research showing that different probiotics and different things could also potentially play a role this one's a little bit uh, contradictory so some shows yeah really good some shows mm, maybe not really depends on the strain of bacteria depends on the individual's kind of gut microbiome at the time as well and how much that's going to kind of affect it so these are really cool things then it's also this other kind of chicken and the egg sort of situation where it's like so is it the depression that's or like the psychological things that's going on causing the dysbiosis in the gut or is it the dysbiosis in the gut causing the issues um kind of with the psychology so it's they, these are things they're still trying to kind of figure out and trying to tease it out and see how how it can be kind of targeted but it's definitely really really interesting 
And the thing where I suppose when there's different things psychologically going on, like sometimes in terms of food, you know, if, if you're having a bad day and you can't even get out of bed, eating is going to be the last thing on your list. Like if you can just get the quickest and easiest thing into it. So there's also these other kind of environmental factors at play or like if you've got kids or if you've got a job or four jobs and these sort of kind of things as well. So I don't want anyone to feel like hugely pressured if they're listening to this and they're like, well, I can't actually, I don't have access to these great foods or things like that. And this is just a, a body of research that's really, really interesting. And hopefully we might know a little bit further down the line. But the main thing is to always stick with what kind of medication or therapies that you're you're currently doing and just do this as an adjunct so yeah it's definitely a really cool cool um body of research so be exciting to see what comes I think it's really cool and it's definitely interesting because of course there are so many variables that it's hard to say anything's the thing because with the gut microbiome and all of the things that are going on if you're depressed you're probably not eating that many vegetables because you can't be bothered and you're probably living off like toast or takeaway or something which will affect what's what's in your gut so then the act of like making some food and eating some fruit and some vegetables will be changing your gut bacteria which will have an impact on your brain but also the act of you getting up and making yourself some food and like actively looking after yourself is also going to have a different have an impact on how you're feeling because by doing that you're telling yourself that you can you can do it which is something that will help you deal with depression as well because often again I'm not an expert I'm just a person that's depressed sometimes <laughs> but often the the hardest thing is just doing something so then you're you're stuck in this place where you just can't you just can't do anything so you're doing the bare minimum and sometimes feeding yourself isn't on the list mm. so if you can get yourself to do that thing then you know that you can do it. So you can do it again tomorrow. So then that is also going to be really helpful. So then all of the things kind of work together as like a team of, of things to help you feel better again. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like a domino effect, I suppose, in a way, isn't it? And then there's so much like research showing that exercise can really benefit our kind of mental health and things like that too. And that also really benefits the gut microbiome. So there's lots of really interesting research to show that the kind of level of diversity and kind of active people compared to sedentary people is like completely like you know there's so much more diversity there and it's really really good so if if that's the thing that that's possible too you've kind of got the you know the endorphins and the kind of beneficial effect of you know improving the gut microbiome through that and then other things like I know that particularly as well when like that when you're feeling depressed you don't want to make food you don't want to do anything but things like yoga and meditation can be amazingly good for that too because you're kind of getting yourself into that sort of mindful kind of present state you're calming down again getting into that rest and digest you're kind of again which is helping everything down in the gut there as well and kind of giving you space above to kind of kind of think through things a little bit so there's definitely lots of different like routes of action but um and different ways to target the gut as well that aren't always um to do it food so it's really interesting to see all the different different ways that you can approach these different things but um yeah it's a really cool area And these things I think are really important for everyone, not just people who have got specific issues or who have mental health issues who want to do some experimenting. This is stuff that's really important for everyone. And looking after your gut health is kind of all of the things that you already know, but now we have a small amount of science that tells you that it's true. So like eating lots of vegetables and fruit 
and yeah. doing some exercise and trying to relax. These are things that we've always known are good things, but now we know a little bit more factually, I suppose. That's it, isn't it? It's, it's almost like kind of the general healthy eating guidelines, like eat your fiber, eat your carbs, get your healthy fats and all this sort of a thing. And sometimes I think it's just, it's like, God, that's too easy. Like when it's actually, um, I think as well with gut health, like everyone really likes these really expensive supplements and probiotics and all these different things and bobs. And you're kind of like, actually, you can do it so much easier. It doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be as simple as like just improving the diet a little bit, getting some movement, managing your stress, taking some time for yourself. Like just actually stopping for a moment can be really helpful. It seems to be just such a terribly difficult thing for everyone. Like the world we live in is just so fast paced, even though you know, we've been kind of thrown into a pandemic this year. I think even after coming out of that lockdown, like we've just gone straight back to normal, really. Um, but I think that's one thing that I think everyone needs to know as well or needs to try is just like take 10 minutes for yourself, like just to sit and like throw your phone away, just even looking into space, like that can be so beneficial. And then you actually get a chance to be like, oh, I feel pretty good today or oh, don't feel so good today. And then you might get a chance to kind of explore that a little bit. But uh, but yeah, it's all the it's all the simple little things that are actually going to be so beneficial. Like you don't need to spend hundreds of pounds or euros on these things. Yeah, absolutely. And with probiotics as well, there is research that shows that probiotics can be helpful, but it's a very specific strain on a very specific thing. And there is no way in knowing if when you go and you pick up your yakko or whatever from the shop, if that's what you're getting we just we just don't know we're not at a place yet where we can be like right i need this very specific latin word <laughs> and then that's what you go and you buy so instead of spending i don't know how much these things cost three pounds on this little tiny yogurt you could buy three pounds worth of different vegetables yeah. and then eat that instead and then also you're full and you've eaten some food but you're getting this variety of stuff with gut health, what's so important is that you are getting a variety, which is why you want to be so careful about eliminating stuff all willy-nilly, because then you might be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't need to get rid of it and now you can't eat it anymore. Mm -hmm. And also, your life is probably more expensive because you've swapped it for something else that isn't as nice but costs twice as much. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point as well, that, like, yeah, you could get a probiotic supplement, but, um, again, if if it's not the right strain or the right type or if you're actually a healthy individual that doesn't need it it's a waste of money whereas like you said if you've got three pounds of vegetables you're getting a fiber you're getting all these other like nutrients like your vitamins and your minerals if you've got like bread you're getting different carbohydrates like you're getting so much more for that three pounds compared to maybe 20 pounds 50 pounds 100 pounds depending on what brand you buy so it's always good to think of that as well what is like the easiest thing that i can do to begin with and if that doesn't work, then we spend the money. So it's like, yeah, look at maybe getting some more fiber, getting some more diversity into the diet. And then if there's no improvement there, maybe then I might look at spending that money on maybe someone who can support me rather than just buying a supplement that mightn't really work and you don't really know a huge amount about. Yeah, absolutely. What do you know about gut health and sugar-free beverages? Maybe specifically sugar-free energy drinks? What happens when you drink too much of, of these sugar-free drinks? So there's sort of two different components of these kind of sugar-free drinks. So like I said about the low FODMAP diet, 
so polyols are anything that like sugar-free sweeteners they can cause some issues for people with IBS not everybody but some people so basically what happens with these is they get into our they don't get absorbed properly in our small intestine so when they get to the large intestine either two things happen firstly the like they bring water into the system and then you've got like whew, everything's moving out or they might cause bloating when the gut bacteria kind of meet it so in that sense it's you're kind of you might be bringing on symptoms kind of like bloating diarrhea these sort of things there was some research done which potentially said that um they had a negative effect on the gut microbiome so it might reduce diversity or inhibit different types of bacteria from growing in the gut as far as i know i think that has been disproven i'm not 100 percent sure but it's always good to kind of remember it just to not don't be drinking it by the gallons basically every day and then the other side of things is the caffeine content in it. So caffeine is a stimulant, which is totally fine, not harmful in like good normal amounts. For somebody with like kind of a sensitive gut or IBS, caffeine can go either way. For some people, it can be totally fine. For some, it kind of initiates that sort of like, you know, it stimulates the kind of CNS, which it then can kind of bring on a little bit of anxiety or kind of jitteriness. And that again can cause either the bloating or the kind of expulsion of everything because it's the CNS is your central nervous system, which kind of controls all of your kind of fight or flight sort of responses. So it's kind of like being stimulated, but it's like, oh, like what's the threat? And it still kind of can just open bells and let everything go. So we kind of have the component of the caffeine and then the kind of sweeteners so for someone with IBS they're sensitive but those two things could be an issue uh, for somebody like a normal person it's probably going to be fine once you're kind of sticking to the caffeine um, kind of upper limit which would be maximum around 400 milligrams a day in these drinks it can be anywhere from like 80 milligrams a day up to like ridiculous amounts so it's just really good to be aware of what's in the drink and what I'd say there is in terms of like sweeteners generally for the general public research at the moment says that seem to be totally fine and safe for people to have. But again, as with anything, you know, too much of anything can be a little bit too much. So maybe just be aware that maybe one or two cans should be fine. Personally, I don't like them, so I'd probably err on the side of one. Do you think eating or drinking something that causes distress in your insides can cause permanent damage like anything not necessarily energy drinks but do you think you can have something that your insides don't like and then they're like no this is it i now am scarred and will be broken forever would you mean like physically or psychologically physically i feel like psychologically the answer could definitely be yes yeah i in terms of physically i i don't think so because our body's quite good at like recovering from things um if it was physically, you'd probably end up in hospital. In that case, like something like gluten, um, yes. Uh, if you're continuing to eat gluten and you are celiac disease, celiac disease, if you have celiac disease, um, that's really damaging to your gut. It's affecting the, the villi there and that will be damaging. Um, in things like irritable bowel disease, that can sometimes cause an issue. For a healthy individual, I wouldn't think so. In terms of psychology, potentially, if you have a food that you know like that, you know cause you to be really ill for like three weeks or gave you vomiting or things like that you can have that like fear of like which we can sometimes get with lactose and people if they have like milk and they 
they don't tolerate it very well and they get sick it's like that mental scar of like fear that's going to happen again and it's your brain like building a pathway to protect you basically to be like oh we're not going to have that because this is what happened last time we don't want to go through that again it's dangerous it might make make you unwell so I would think more so on the side of psychology physically um maybe not so much if you're a healthy individual going back back slightly to some of the weird and wonderful research that is all new have you seen the stuff on fecal transplants where they're taking poop out of one person and then putting it into another person and then the person that was sick is now healthy or less depressed or something yeah that's fascinating and like when you hear it initially you're like that is absolutely disgusting but I think it's like how cool is that that you could take the poo of a healthy person and put it like I'm a nutritionist working in that area of gut health poo talk is my thing so like it's like yeah let's talk about poo but like putting healthy poo into somebody with say who might have psychological issues or like uh, unhealthy gut or IBS and all of a sudden they're fine um I haven't looked into it recently because I when it kind of first emerged a few years ago it was like wow that's really cool and then there was sort of things where it was like mm, maybe this isn't so ethical um but the mice studies in mice is pretty cool and there's definitely been a few in humans and I'm sure I saw somewhere that you can actually donate your poo if you're healthy I don't know if you've seen that I've not seen that I haven't done it just saying but um <laughs> you have to do a really rigorous test so they know that there's no background of say like anxiety depression or anything like this or trauma because that can affect your gut microbiome which can then be transferred and I think they might have done that in mice and it's they put it from like a a mouse with depression and put it into healthy mice mouse and um they made the healthy mouse depressed yeah yeah which is quite bad like that feels a bit unethical I'm not sure if it's going to become a thing because it's definitely I think there might be ethical things there but um it's cool so I mean obviously there are different rules here to rules in America but I was listening to a podcast not that long ago where they interviewed an American nutritionist who was really into the poo transplants and she actually had it and had some healthy poo put into her and it worked really well but then the trial ended so she didn't get to do it anymore so she tried to make her own poo samples and she made like little capsules out of somebody else's poo but it didn't work as well but that's the potential future for poo transplants, just eating your friend's poo. She ingested that already. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it was in one of those little, like, capsule things, though, so you couldn't taste the poo, but you'd probably burp poo. Look, it's 2020. Anything is possible. <laughs> I would be surprised. Um, yeah gosh so this is something that I think is very cool and I'm gonna wait and see what happens but I'm probably never gonna want to try I have another question from one of my clients actually who heard that I was talking to a gut expert and she was like oh great the question is how do I stop burping so I guess she does a lot of burping maybe when she's doing her running she also does a lot of running I actually should have asked for more information sorry I didn't (laughs) So firstly, I think about how is she eating? If she's eating quite quickly, that sort of indigestion thing can kind of bring gas back up. Um, so maybe take, take it a little bit slower. Everybody loves a bit of a mindful meal. Um, so that's one thing to consider, maybe slowing down when she's eating or even when she's drinking. Sometimes that like gulping sensation of even if it's water can kind of bring a bit of gas back up. Uh, the other thing would be like chewing gum, 
uh, fizzy drinks, they can all kind of produce gas in the gut, which can come back up. I think those would be two things to maybe consider if she's into like energy drinks or fizzy drinks or anything like that. Sometimes alcohol can do the same as well. Um, spicy food as well. So caffeine, spicy food, any kind of fizzy drinks, like those gassy bubbles, uh, eating slower um, and things like pasta and that where you're like slurping things in or like noodles, maybe slow down there as well. I feel like I need to share, th thank you, that was a really good answer. I feel like I need to share a really useful way of eating spaghetti where there's no slurping, which maybe people don't know, but you get yeah. your fork and yeah. then you get like three or four of the little spaghetti strands, then you do twist, twist, twist against the side of the plate and then you can just put the whole mouthful in your mouth and then you don't have to breathe any of it in, it's in like a little ball. Ah, yeah, and it's real. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do a spaghetti tutorial. Um, <laughs> and then it also slows you down because for every mouthful that you're doing, you're doing like 15 seconds of turn in, turn in. So it's yeah. like double benefit. Chopsticks so, yeah. are good too. <laughs> Chopsticks are good too. Exactly. Okay, so we have been talking for longer than I had planned in my head. So sorry and thank you. No Before we finish today, I always like to ask my guests for a fun fact. Do you have a fun fact that you would like to share with our listeners today? So I had to prep this because apparently I'm not so fun, but um, I hate figs, which is a little bit funny because my business is called Food is Good or Fig Nutrition. So when I tell people that, they're kind of like, look at me as if I'm a fraud. So that's my fun fact, which isn't so fun, but a little bit funny. <laughs> I can't believe you don't like figs. Figs are fantastic. I tried like I just I don't know because I don't like dried fruit so then my friend was like oh why don't you try the fresh figs they're in season so got a box of fresh figs I was like yes like gonna be a fig person and then I tasted it and I was like this is really disgusting so my friend was like oh maybe you got like a bad batch why don't you get it from like a farmer's market tried that and was like no better so I said you know what I'll just stop so that's my confession more than a fun fact, I'd say. It's a confession more than a fun yeah. fact. If people would like to find you and learn more about IBS and gut health, where can they do so? So I do most of my bits on Instagram. So you can find me at f.i.g underscore nutrition underscore. I don't like figs, but that's my name. But yeah, the fig nutrition um, is the best place to find me on Instagram. And I do all my bits there. Thank you very much. And until next time, guys. Thank you.